Richard Golden is a professor of mathematical psychology and cognitive science at University of Texas at Dallas. He's also the host of Learning Machines 101, a podcast which provides listeners with a gentle introduction to artificial intelligence and machine learning. Richard, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Let's start out with a straightforward definition. What is machine learning? Well, that's um, an interesting uh, question. Um, what is machine learning? I would say that machine learning is a particular branch of artificial intelligence, which uh, focuses more upon uh, statistical aspects of learning, where you're trying to pick up statistical regularities from the environment or model statistical regularities in the environment in order to uh, make intelligent inferences. What are the fundamental concepts to building a machine that is artificially intelligent? Well, the first most important fundamental concept is getting the right uh, feature representation. If you don't have the right representation, um, then the problem can be very hard. But if the feature representation is right, then the problem can be um, very easy. So that's kind of the, perhaps the most important uh, ingredient. And then after that, uh, then the next issue is sort of trying to understand, um, and this is related to the feature representation issue, is trying to understand the problem domain and trying to incorporate constraints from the problem domain into the design of not only your uh, architecture, but maybe even the learning and inference algorithms as well. Uh, w when people, for example, are trying to make inductive inferences, they use um, prior knowledge about the world. And if you, if you can incorporate that sort, those sort of prior knowledge constraints into, into your system, then you're going to make better inferences. Of course, if those constraints are wrong, then you'll make worse inferences. Mm. So I've heard machine learning as described as the art and science of teaching computers to identify patterns and learn rules. And certainly in some of your work, um, I've seen the emphasis on, on the idea of rules. How would you define a rule in the domain of machine learning? Um, a, a rule is basically a, an if-then statement, perhaps a, a you know sort of like a production, in a production system, you have rules for given certain conditions hold and um, generate certain actions. But I, I would say that uh, this sort of more logic-based component um, is probably less of a central component of machine learning. And in my podcast, I talk quite a bit about uh, logical rules, especially at the beginning of the um, podcast series. Um, I, do, I do that because this is... Fundamental to to sort of understand um, the the role and limitations of of rules, and so how we can kind of go go beyond that. In in the real world, it's very difficult to represent knowledge as a collection of rules, and I think that's where machine learning really sort of comes in, where machine learning really uh, shines in dealing dealing with the fact that the knowledge in the world is very difficult to represent as a as a collection of rules. You've mentioned feature generation. How is the idea of feature generation related to the creation of rules? How is uh, feature generation uh, related to the creation of rules? Well, um, when you have a rule, um, you're checking to see whether certain conditions hold, and 
then if those conditions hold, then you might generate certain actions. Well, how do you, how do you define those conditions? So, for example, consider a, um, a chessboard and you're going to make a move. You could say, well, my feature is going to be a grayscale image representation of the chessboard. Well, now you've clearly this is if you make your features to be little pixels with little gray levels, you pro clearly you're going to have a much harder inference problem. On the other hand, if you make your features more abstract, such as the locations of the pieces on the chessboard, then um, things will be easier. And if you make it even, even more abstract features, such as uh, my opponent is laying a trap for me, I've got to uh, kind of escape from this trap, then, then that's even you know, more useful. So that challenge, of course, is where do you get these abstract features? Okay, so, so traditionally, like in the 70s, these features would be hand-coded, and they're still hand-coded even today. But uh, there's been a lot of uh, work, for example, in trying to extract such more complex abstract features um, automatically from the statistical environment, perhaps using some of these deep learning methods. It's, it's an open area of research. Some people will say... The, the you know learning these abstract features is the way to go. Other people will say you're never going to be able to learn them. You're going to have to um, hand code them. Um, ultimately, I think the problem is is got to be some sort of combination of these approaches. So in the real world, there are always edge cases that uh, smart machines have to deal with. Like if an autonomous car is sitting at a red light and the light turns green. Generally, the car should go unless there's a person walking in front of it. So this can be like this can create complex examples that um, you know, have sets of rules that could be contradictory or hard to disambiguate. How do you avoid making rules that are inconsistent? How do you create a system that is allows allows a machine a smart machine to make progress even when there are two conflicting rules? Well, that's where the uh, statistical uh, component of my definition of machine learning comes in is if you take sort of a probabilistic view of reality rather than a deterministic view, then uh, then things look a little different. So I remember when I was a uh, graduate student, I was sitting in my in, in the office of my advise of my advisor in electrical engineering, and he said, um, "Look at that window. Um, you see evokes." wagon, I see a realization of a random variable. Um, <laughs> so, so the point is, is that the, if we instead say, well, there's a high probability that, some, that we should do something under certain conditions, and there's a high probability we should do something else under certain conditions, then we can use these probabilistic representations of reality to make uh, inductive inferences, such as well, what's the most probable action should I take given these circumstances? Uh, the challenge in this situation, of course, is how do you uh, write down um, these probabilities in such a way that they are uh, consistent? And there are definitely techniques that have been uh, developed to uh, do that. Smart machines often get into situations that lack certainty can be related to the previous example of the car, the autonomous car in front of a green light with a person in front of it also. 
In Learning Machines 101, you talk about using fuzzy set theory to help make inferences in uncertain environments. What is fuzzy set theory? Well, the idea in, uh, in logic, for example, if I say, if I am a uh, dog, then I'm an animal. In logic, we could think of logical rules as corresponding to uh, set theory representations. So the set of dogs is a subset of the set of animals. And so uh, in fuzzy set theory, we allow, uh, elem- we allow partial membership in such sets. So we can have a uh, particular uh, object which can be only partially member uh, of the set. And so the degree of membership so associated with each set is what's called a degree of membership uh, function, which uh, which indicates your degree of membership. So you could develop a whole set of not only fuzzy set theory, but fuzzy fuzzy rules to make inferences um, about the world. Um, in probability theory, we actually assign degrees of belief or probabilities to crisp sets, to sets uh, which are more traditional, where you're either in the set or you're not in the set. But uh, so in some sense, some sense, the probability theory entails a sort of logical, non-fuzzy view of reality. But in fact, when there have been theories developed which allow for even more extreme representations of uncertainty where uh, we can represent the world in terms of fuzzy sets and assign degrees of belief to these uh, fuzzy sets. How can a machine learning system estimate the probability of something that it has not seen? Well, the basic idea is to represent the probability of something you have not seen is you have to make certain assumptions about um, what the probability distribution is that you are trying to learn. So, and these assumptions are often called smoothing assumptions. So the basic idea is that if there's a certain probability if you see, don't see something, but you know the, uh, the probability of something that is very similar to that uh, thing, then you might um, sort of estimate the probability of the unseen thing to be similar to the probability of the uh, thing you have seen. In machine learning, we often talk about models. Can you describe exactly what a machine learning model is? Well, um, Models mean different things to to different people, Um, but in the context of machine learning, and specifically uh, statistical machine learning, a model refers to a uh, probability model, to a collection of probability distributions. And the real world is presumably one of these um, probability distributions. The real world presumably generates data according to some uh, probabilistic law, and the goal of the learning machine is the learning machine has a model of reality. It has a collection of possible probabilistic laws that might uh, represent reality. And the goal of learning is to try to pick out which of those probabilistic uh, laws is uh, the best model of the probabilistic law which is generating the data. You describe statistical gradient descent as the 
fundamental principle underlying learning in the majority of machine learning algorithms. How does statistical gradient descent work? Well, the um, basic idea of statistical uh, gradient descent is that we, in regular gradient descent, is the basic idea is that we have some function which we want to minimize, and this function is a measure of the performance of the learning machine. And so the idea is the learning machine adjusts its parameters such that it can optimize its uh, performance. Now, this performance function presumably is dependent upon the uh, knowledge that you, the training examples that you provide the learning machine. But in the real world, we might have we might not see all the training examples. We might not have all the training examples available for the learning machine. The learning machine might be interacting with the environment and training examples come in one by one. So in order to, um, so the learning machine never actually ever sees the objective function that it's trying to minimize. So what it has to do is it has to uh, use the training example that it's currently viewing or the training examples that it's viewed so far and uh, estimate the objective function that it thinks it would see if it had kept observing um, training examples into the future. And the estimation approach in this case, in the example you mentioned, statistical gradient descent, is basically uh, you twiddle the parameters in such a way that the uh, value of your uh, performance measure, which measures the performance of the learning machine, uh, decreases just a little bit um, each time you see a training example. But it's important to understand that um, the function that you're minimizing is, is, not, is actually a function that's not observable. It's a function of the training data that not only you've already seen, but also training data that you'll uh, we'll see in the future, that you expect to see in the future. You have one podcast episode, or at least one, uh, about Monte Carlo Markov chains. Why are Monte Carlo Markov chains uh, important to machine learning? Maybe you could sure. uh, describe what they are. Sure, absolutely. Um, so the concept of them, basically Monte Carlo Markov chains are, are good for two uh, important tasks. One task is the problem of uh, stochastic search. And the other task is the problem of, uh, of computing um, complicated integrals or summations. So let me kind of focus on the stochastic search um, example first. So uh, lots of times in artificial intelligence we have we are faced with the problem of search. We have a bunch of possibilities and we want to try to pick the best uh, choice. And in, if the search space is, is very, 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 very large, um, it may be impossible to uh, search a significant percentage of that um, space using even the most advanced uh, deterministic uh, search algorithms. So then you would have to resort to a method of stochastic search where you randomly visit different um, points in the uh, solution space. And what the Monte Carlo Markov chain algorithms are 
have been around since the 50s, but the basic idea is that you create this crazy way of randomly wandering around the state space in such a way that the solutions that are the best corresponding to the you know, best performance solutions are visited more frequently. And so because they're visited more frequently, what you basically do as you're sort of making this random wandering all over the state space, which might be extremely high dimensional. I mean, the dimensionality state space might be, um, you know, easily two to the 10,000 or something bigger than that. <laughs> okay, I'm talking big. Um, yeah. Because with modern computers, you know, a state space of two to the 25th, um, you can if you soup up your machinery, you can do an exhaustive search of it. So you wouldn't want to use this type of technique on something like that. But when you have an enormous uh, search space, then you, what you do is you sort of randomly wander around the state space. And the mathematics is such that you will tend to visit the higher probability states more uh, frequently. Now, this is kind, you have to be kind of careful with the, the use of these algorithms because um, you can sometimes fool yourself into thinking that you've, um, got to a good solution when really you haven't. But the way people um, deal with this problem is they just run the algorithm like, for example, a second time. And if you go to some place which is totally different, then you say, hmm, well, um, that's um, something we need to take into account. So as you're wandering around the state space, you just keep track of the best uh, solution. And and that's what you use when you're, compl when you're done. Now, Oh, I'm just going to say is that there's another application of Monte Carlo Markov chain, which is evaluating um, summations or integrals or expectations. Is in many times in machine learning, uh, I, I give a good example. Let me give you a little more concrete example. Suppose you had a, a, a prediction problem, and you were trying to predict, um, a, you know, predict a particular quantity of interest, and you had, say. 1,000 possible features that you thought would be good for predicting that quantity of interest. So you've got 1,000 possible predictors or features, and you don't know which ones to include in your model. Um, so basically, you could, the way you could think of this, you have two to the 1,000 possible uh, models to consider, or two to the 1,000 minus one um, possible models to consider. Well, one approach using the, if we do a stochastic search approach, we could kind of wander around the state space and using the Monte Carlo Markov chain method. And since we're visiting the models that are uh, the best most frequently, then we can just kind of keep track of the best model. And I've already kind of gone over this, but this is perhaps not the best way. I mean, if we think of this from a, a good, a simple example, suppose you wanted uh, some sort of expert opinion on uh, how to solve a particular uh, problem in nuclear power plants, then you might go, over, go all over the world and collect a whole room of experts who are all experts in nuclear power plants. And then once you got them all into the room, it might be thousands of experts or in the room, then what you would do is you would say, okay, now wh which of these guys is the best expert and you find the best expert, and you say, okay, the rest of you can leave, okay? So that wouldn't really be the best way to use all of those experts. A better way to use all of those experts would be to uh, 
rate each expert according to their dimension of expertise. And then we had a particular problem in nuclear power plants. You would compute sort of a weighted average of the opinions of all the experts in the room in order to um, answer your question about nuclear power plants. Now, this weighted average would be pretty big because you might have, you know, thousands of experts in the room. Well, similarly, in uh, what's called model averaging, uh, one might make a prediction instead of trying to look for the best uh, regression model, the best predictive model in this big model space, what one does is one uh, computes a weighted average of the predictions of, of all the models you visit in your stochastic search, where you weight the, uh, influ the, the prediction of each model that you visit randomly in this, in this random uh, walk, uh, you weight it according to the expertise associated with that that model. And since you're visiting models that are um, that are more effective predictors more frequently, this tends to give you a, uh, a weighted average, which is going to give you especially good uh, predictions. Is there a particular vocabulary term for this idea of of getting a weighted average of yes. a bunch of different? Yes, the technical term is called um, Bayesian model averaging (BMA) and uh, a less well-known um, variation of this is called frequentist model averaging, FMA. And if you go to Wikipedia, you can probably find an entry on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. So your website has some examples of machine learning applications that you've been interested in. Many of them are medical scenarios, like predicting the risk of multiple organ failures after severe in injury. Could you explain how machine learning can be effectively applied to one of these real-world scenarios? Well, um, the, the way we've been, the, the, in that type of application, we are actually, we're actually doing something similar to this um, model search idea. We uh, search through the model space for, first we get some features and we select the features with the, in the presence of a domain expert. And then once we've got these features, then we uh, construct a model space and uh, do a stochastic search through the model space. And then once that stochastic search is completed, then we do a deterministic search um, for, um, for the best model. So, so this is um, one... So the techniques that I was sort of referring to are that's the kind that we've been exploring in, um, in practical applications. Okay, interesting. Um, so let's talk about uh, neural networks. Uh, what is a neural network? How does that apply to machine learning? Well, the the term neural network is is a uh, it means it can mean different things to to different people, and if you and I and I think that if you went to a, like a neuroscientist, they would say, "Well, a neural network is uh, a particular uh, circuitry in in the brain." Okay, but uh, most people in the machine learning literature use the terminology neural network to refer to a uh, feet to a network architecture where you have uh, inputs which feed into uh, one layer of preprocessing transformations which feed into another layer of transformations which generate a, 
uh, prediction. But um, there, there are many different types of um, uh, there, there are many different sort of ways to interpret sort of the, the phrase neural network. I like to think of the phrase neural network uh, more in the terminology of I, I only use the phrase actually when I'm actually trying to make a abstract model of the brain or talking about an abstract model of neural processing. Otherwise, I prefer to use uh, the term uh, uh, machine learning. Uh, the typical uh, terminology that people use for the term neural network is uh, neural network is typically in the machine learning literature a way of learning features as well as using those features to make predictions. So the features themselves can have parameters um, in them and you can learn the parameters of the features as well as learn how those features make predictions. And this is an old idea. This is not really such a new idea. For example, if we do a Fourier analysis where we represent a uh, time signal as a weighted sum of sines and cosines, uh, we could think of that, if you want, as a neural network uh, where the basis functions, the cosines and the sines, um, correspond to the uh, features of the uh, time series. So the the idea of pre-processing transformations and computing weighted sums of basis functions is 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 a pretty well established idea uh, in literature. Speaking more specifically about terminology, there are the notion of convolutional neural networks and recurrent neural right. networks. Could you distinguish between these two? Sure. Um, so the basic idea of a uh, convolutional neural network is that what you're trying to do is you're, and these have been, by the way, extremely successful. They've been used uh, in a variety of ways and have been extremely successful. But the basic idea is that you have a uh, an image, for example, and you, if you learn a particular feature in one part of the image, then you would like to be able to generalize and and detect that feature in another part of the image that it would ne was never presented before. So in a convolutional neural network, you have these features which are used to examine which process information from a particular region of the image, and then that same feature is then perhaps moved a little bit and it's used to process a different part of the image, and then moved again and used to process another part of the image. And as a result of this feature sort of moving across the image, it generates a uh, feature map, which can then be um, uh, used to uh, generate a, a, a recoded representation of the original image in terms of these more abstract features. And then you can have a, another layer of features processing um, this feature map in a similar way. And some of the more successful uh, uh, deep learning machines have actually used these kind of convolutional maps to uh, represent uh, actions on Atari video games. And the, the lower level features pick up things like uh, sh small little graphical features such as like horizontal line segment here, visual line segment there, 
Um, the next layer of processing picks up more abstract features such as um, this is a little object here and there's a little object there and then maybe at the near the highest level you might have representations of particular uh, situations that need to be avoided or um, or dealt with. So I watched a talk by Jeff Dean of Google, and one of the interesting things that he said in that talk was an important property of neural networks is that results get better with more data and with bigger models and with more computation. And I thought it was an interesting property because it's not necessarily true about systems in general. Like I feel like if you, uh, you know, grow a system in general, a lot of times it just becomes more bloated and harder to deal with. Um, so I'm curious what you think, like, do you agree that it's true that neural networks just basically get better with more data and bigger models and more computation? I actually think that, um, the statement made by, um, uh, Jeff Dean was kind of an over oversimplification. I actually kind of liked your comment about the situation a lot better. It seems more appropriate. It is much harder to deal with. Uh, the systems do get more bloated and more difficult to deal with, and these deep learning systems are <laughs> are bloated and difficult to deal with. Um, so I, uh, it, it's not it's not the case that just as you collect more data, that things will always get better. Yeah, I don't know if you read this paper by D. Scully that was like, uh, it was called Machine Learning, the High Interest Credit Card uh, of Technical Debt. <laughs> it was like, he just talked about like machine learning is, uh, has all these properties where it leads to a glut of technical debt. But again, that that, that doesn't doesn't really um, contrast with what Jeff Dean was saying, I don't right. think, but, but there's uh, there is something there. So yeah, um, in in episode twenty three of your show, you discuss how to build a deep learning machine. What differentiates a deep learning machine from a typical machine learning system? Uh, well, I think, or I guess a non non deep learning system. I would define. So it sort of depends wh how you define uh, deep deep learning, but if you define deep learning as as typically, I guess I would make the distinction between learning problems which are uh, what are called convex versus non-convex learning problems. So a convex kind of learning problem means that as the learning proceeds, you're guaranteed to get to a uh, unique global solution, or maybe not unique, but a global solution. Uh, and the learning process is pretty straightforward. And the deep learning machines where you're actually learning the features, you're discovering the features that you need to solve the learning problem, I think that's sort of the, the critical, um, critical distinction. So in traditional lear machine learning, you are given the features, and in, in deep learning, you, the main goal is to sort of discover the features. And those features are actually hierarchical. So it's not like you just discover features at one layer, you discover features at sort of the lowest layer, and then you discover features which represent interesting combinations of those features, and then you discover other features which are interesting combinations of those features, and onwards and uh, upwards. So that's, to me, the, the, the fundamental 
uh, characteristic of deep learning. People who are doing deep learning are really interested in in taking a complex problem and not applying a divide and conquer strategy, but rather uh, trying to sort of learn the entire problem at once, features and relationships among features, and then intermediate features and relationships among intermediate features, and higher order features and relationships among higher order features, and learning all of these uh, simultaneously. Why are convolutional neural nets so important to this feature discovery and this, this, this deep learning? Well, I'd say the convolutional neural networks are important because they have worked really well. <laughs> I mean, they've solved a lot of problems that uh, people had difficulty solving um, before. So I, I would say that that's, I think sort of the fact that they work really well is, is where there's sort of a lot of uh, interest interest in them. Sometimes people will say, uh, referring to the deep learning or the convolutional neural networks, they'll say, well, this is um, based upon how the brain works. And you have to be really careful um, about statements such as this. This is kind of coming back to the neural network question. Because the brain is extremely uh, complicated. And saying this is the way the brain works is kind of, as the explanation is sort of like saying this is the way the, um, the, the world works. Um, it's, it's just kind of a broad... You have to say explicitly, well, what aspect of the brain am I modeling and then w is this successful at modeling this aspect of the brain uh, the uh, I, example I give to um, my students I think I've mentioned this in the podcast too is uh, the McCulloch Pitts formal neuron so the McCulloch Pitts formal neuron was actually invented in the 1940s and by a uh, neuroscientist and a, a mathematician uh, the neuroscientist was um, McCulloch and the mathematician was Pitts. And they were trying to build a mathematical model of how neurons work in the brain and how they generate interesting computations. And they modeled the behavior of a neuron as uh, computing a weighted sum of its inputs and then seeing if that weighted sum was greater than the threshold. And if it was, then the neuron would emit a spike. And that was consistent with what they currently knew about neuroscience. And in some sense, it's consistent with today's, what we know about neuroscience today. They show that you could wire up any collection of these McCulloch-Pitts formal neurons and realize any logical function. And uh, that was very influential in the design of the modern digital computer, which, and these McCulloch-Pitts formal neurons turn out to be logical AND gates and logical OR gates and NOT gates. And so you can realize any logical function. And this is a network. The, this logic network is inspired by the brain. Uh, it, it turns out that even though it was sort of an abstract model of the brain, it turns out that the features of it as sort of a model for neuroscience turned out to be flawed later on. Um, they uh, were due to the fact that Information in the brain is really represented in terms of firing frequencies. Uh, rat, so the output of a neuron is best represented in terms of its informational features in terms of a firing frequency. Um, other, other researchers have shown that, uh, that 
neurons have linear response properties in many different situations. So linear systems are an example of a, of, of a neural network as, as well. But um, pe people, so you wouldn't justify, so you could say, well, I can also justify, um, why am I using this linear system? Well, it's because it's inspired by the brain. Okay, so this explanation of that it's inspired by the brain, I think, is, um, la lacks, um, is, is a little lacking. Well, to leverage that lacking analogy, you do talk about how you can improve deep learning performance with artificial brain damage. What do you mean by that? <laughs> um, so that that the so basically, the artificial brain damage in this in this context is what's referred to as what's a a phenomenon which is or an approach which is called dropout, uh, which is a form of of Basically, the basic idea of dropout is we have a deep learning network where we present it, uh, input pattern comes in, and it's processed by the first layer of units, and then the next layer of units processes that input pattern, and then, it, and then the next layer of units processes the output of that layer, and so on. And in dropout, what you do is each time, each time a pattern is presented, then the connections among the units are strengthened and weakened. So the basic idea of dropout is that you, after you present or when you present a particular input pattern, you uh, randomly ignore a subset of the nodes in the network and you just update the network based upon the nodes that are not ignored. And this seems like sort of an odd kind of thing to do, but the basic idea is that by doing this, this forces, um, this prevents some of the nodes in the network or, or presents, pre prevents a lot of the nodes in the network from sort of uh, look, coming along for a free ride. If you're in the network and you're not doing any work, then um, you're going to get uh, penalized. And it can actually be shown that this type of method for dropout is extremely effective. It, most of the most, pretty much many of the successful applications of the deep learning um, method uh, use this dropout method. And it can be shown to actually be mathematically equivalent to a form of this uh, model averaging technique I talked about um, earlier, where you're simultaneously learning uh, to strengthen and weaken the connections of a whole bunch of networks and then averaging the results across them. You are a college professor and you spend some of your time teaching students machine learning. When you teach students, what are the biggest conceptual hurdles about machine learning that those students have trouble with? Well, it, it, it depends upon um, depends upon what, what course it is and, and who the students are. Um, but in the introductory course, I think w one of the big conceptual hurdles is the idea that when you have when you're learning in a machine learning environment, you, it's not like the knowledge is immediately accessible. So like in a normal database, you could say, okay, here's the knowledge. It's a bunch of these uh, rules, okay? But in, a, in most machine learning applications, the knowledge is just a bunch of parameter values set to particular numbers. And so it's a little hard for students to figure out uh, you know, how knowledge is, is represented and how inferences are made when um, all you see is just sort of a bunch of numbers. Now, for the more advanced students, 
the, usually the uh, challenges are uh, in, in terms of uh, seeing how the abstract mathematics that's really necessary to sort of understand these uh, machine learning algorithms um, sort of come, you know, comes to play and is, is relevant to uh, particular practical um, applications. So, And you're the host of Learning Machines 101, which is a pretty cool podcast about machine learning. I've listened to it a fair amount. Why did you start Learning Machines 101? <laughs> ah, very interesting question. So um, I will reveal the answer for the first time um, on the air. <laughs> uh, basically, I have been working on a book for the last six years. Oh. And the book is titled, it's uh, Foundations of Statistical Machine Learning. And I decided that it would be important to identify who my potential readers were before the book is published. And so I decided to launch this podcast my first book was published in 1996, and it was called um, Mathematical Methods for Neural Network Analysis and Design. And it was fairly successful, but it wasn't as successful as I really wanted it to be. And since 1996, the book publishing industry has changed quite a bit. I mean, now that, that you don't really go into bookstores to buy books anymore, <laughs> usually go online and buy stuff off Amazon. So... Uh, there's, and there's a lot more competition for, for people sort of seeing, you know, finding out about sort of what your book is about. So I thought, well, a podcast idea might be a really great way for me to sort of collect and identify people that would be interested in this type of material, which is a little abstract, but sort of collect these people from all over the world. Um, in addition to sort of collecting people at, you know, by, going to scientific conferences and, you know, collecting people at, at that level too, but I sort of was trying to going, collecting people in the other direction as well. And so what this, but, so that was my idea is that I should, you know, could give this podcast a, and then it, the, the book is actually aimed at, at sort of not everybody that would actually listen to this podcast. The, 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 the podcast is aimed at a more general audience, but I figured that if each person that was listening to my podcast knew one person that would, be interested in my book, then that would be, that would definitely be a, a good, uh, a good situation for me. Um, and for, for other people, um, regarding my book. Um, but what my book is about is it's about when you're coming up with sort of different machine learning algorithms, how to, uh, how to prove theorems and make design choices so that those algorithms will behave properly and, uh, make proper generalizations. So it's sort of, sort of a theoretical foundations for, um, for machine learning. Do you have a release date for that book? No, I do not. Um, it's going to be pretty far in the future. It's, we're talking about, I would say, um, <laughs> it's going to be several years in the future, future, even though I've, 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 um, been working on the book for six years. It's a, the book's kind of complicated and I want to make this complicated material really accessible. And so there's sort of multiple, challenges is how do you make very, very complicated material very, very, very accessible. 
Yeah. Do you feel like you're like racing against the field also? Because like the field's advancing pretty quickly also. But I, I don't know. Maybe the fundamentals don't don't change rapidly yeah. enough to make it. Well, make well it that's a great great question. So so in fact, the fundamentals don't really change. So it's not like um, the stuff that I'm talking about is you know was relevant you know a long time in decades ago and it'll be relevant you know i think hundreds of years into the future okay the real question is is the examples and the problems is the examples and problems can be outdated very rapidly so you might have this really great way of doing a mathematical analysis of a machine learning algorithm but if your examples are machine learning algorithms from the 1980s or 1990s, uh, people aren't going to be very interested. But if you give examples of how your analysis works, of how to do analyses and the examples you give are examples that from the 21st century, then people are going to be, hey, this is really cool. So one another thing I've started to do is I started to go, I, I went to the machine learning conferences years ago, and now I'm beginning to go back to them to sort of find out uh, what are the you know current architectures that pe that people are most excited about and trying to put those in as examples of of um, applications of the of the mathematical analysis so mm. um, so that's so that's I don't know if that is so anyway that's kind of what I'm doing so yeah and, oh, but also the podcast has sort of taken on a new life of its own as you might have expected. <laughs> So it started off as sort of to support the book, and now it's kind of got its own kind of uh, life that it's kind of developing, and and that's fine too. So it's it's kind of serving sort of dual functions, just sort of just existing as sort of a as a forum for me to sort of talk about um, mach machine learning concepts at a at a more introductory level, um, while simultaneously um, um, identifying. Uh, people with more advanced backgrounds um for yeah i mean i don't i don't know if your interests lie in this realm but like i feel like there's a, a ton of people you could interview like if you wanted to turn it into like a show where you did interviews sometimes like it would be super interesting to hear interviews with people i mean i i, I like the format of your show a lot yeah um but i also i really like listening to to just people talk to each other and i think there's some degree of of uh that's like a universal thing that people like in podcasts is like yeah. people people talking to each other because they like yeah. the feeling of like being in a social setting when they're yeah. listening to a podcast sometimes but i don't know if that's at all well, what think, you no i think that that would be at some point in the future i think you know that would be a dimension to the podcast that i would like to um to to, to add to the podcast um at, at this at this point for the next couple of years I have a, a bunch of things to say um, <laughs> so, so I so um, and I probably would keep having stuff to say but but I think that I eventually would int introduce some um, sort of an interview um, dimension to the podcast at, at some point but I'm not um, at, at this point I don't have any plans to do that and I I, I know that so I, I try to I, I I try. I've been sort of exper I've experimented with different ways of doing the podcast, and the best trick is to yeah. bring on guests and then ask them leading questions. So you sound so, and so you shape what they say, yeah. and it sounds like uh, objective truth. 
That's what I always do. (laughs) (laughs) Makes me more convincing. (laughs) Yeah. That's half joking. Um, So to begin to close off, uh, there's uh, something you discussed in one of your very early episodes. You said uh, the the mystery, there's a mystery underlying (laughs) artificial intelligence and biological intelligence. How do artificial intelligence and biological intelligence differ? Ooh, how do artificial intelligence and biological intelligence differ? Um, do they? Do we know conclusively that they do differ? Yes, they do differ. <laughs> um, I was just trying to I was trying to wrap my mind around that question. Yes, I mean they're they're to, they're totally different. And the the real question is, or the or related question, which I was is sort of like what what do we think the goals of artificial intelligence should be and and like for example suppose you could um suppose you achieved quote unquote uh it, you know would you think that the goal before when you're embarking on a project one thing you want to think about is well what are the goals of the project you know what are we trying to do you know so if you're have a software project well what what are the software requirements for this project so you could sort of play that same kind of game with um, artificial intelligence. What are the, what's the end goal? You know, suppose that we had limitless time and limitless technology and all sorts of resources. What would we declare as a victory? Um, when some people might say, well, you know, um, if the artificial intelligence was like a bi- bi- human biological intelligence, that would be a victory. Well, other people might say, well, um, if the artificial intelligence had had features that were characteristic of human intelligence, but it was still um, what we would call intelligent in some sense, then then that then that would be fine too. If you had an al- if there was if we met an alien uh, an intelligence, or 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 for example, dolphins or dogs, people might say, well, dolphins and dogs are intelligent in some sense, or an alien was intelligent in some sense, but say, but they're not human intelligent, so they're not really truly uh, uh, intelligent. I, I think that you have. To, I think my idea of of uh, intelligence is I'll define. I have my own personal definition of intelligence. I define intelligence to be the ability of a uh, organism or or non-organism to be. Uh, the ability of an entity to be successful within a, its particular ecological niche. So that's my personal definition of intelligence. And some entities have broader ecological niches than others. So you can have a smart pencil sharpener and you plug it into the wall and it can sharpen all sorts of s- pencils. But if you put the pencil sharpener on the seat of your car and say, drive this car to the grocery store and buy me some milk, it's probably not going to do that for you. So it's ecological niches. When I'm plugged in and you stick a pencil into me, then I'll sharpen the pencil really successfully, but um, I'm not going to be able to drive the car to the store and buy some milk for you and bring it home. Okay, so um, humans have a very broad ecological niche and dogs probably have a narrower eco- ecological niche. Um, uh, we have lots of intelligent machines in the real world, which... Uh, which intelligent, you know, and as I said, I think in my podcast in the 60s, we had 1965, late 60s, we had Samuels, 
um, who had a championship playing checker playing program, which used a combination of both artificial intelligence and machine learning um, algorithms to learn from experience. And it was able to beat um, very, very competent human checker player players. And I'm, you know, the 60s, I tell you that I don't know if anybody on, is listening knows the status of computers in the 60s, but they, they didn't have laptops then. <laughs> um, <laughs> the computer technology wasn't very advanced. And the, but this is a very advanced technology. It's, it's a combination of, of artificial intelligence search techniques with machine learning techniques. And when computers have just barely been invented, being able to learn from experience and beat human-level checker-playing, um, you know, human love you know human checker players who were experts in checkers and people had said ah well that's not real artificial intelligence real artificial intelligence is if you could get a um, computer program to play chess you know well that was a lot harder that took another 30 years or something but then when people did that they said well no that's not real artificial intelligence you have to build a computer that would play go um, and so each time we uh, we build something which is sort of artificially intelligent with respect to a particular ecological niche. The mystery kind of goes away. I think the same thing sort of holds with, with human intelligence as, as we learn more about the biology and we learn more about how human intelligence actually works. Um, so the, some of the mystery will go away from that and the parts of human intelligence that we understand really well will say, well, that's just... Um, the amygdala interacting with the frontal cortex in this particular way, um, but uh, yeah, when I when I had Stephen Wolfram on the show recently, he said uh, I, uh, I I might be misquoting him, but I'm pretty sure what he said was uh, he came to the conclusion that knowledge and computation are essentially the same thing, which you know, in one light is uh, kind of maybe puts humanity in a less prestigious light but uh in, in another from another angle it's great because we can compute i mean the, the whatever prestigious stuff humans have we can do with computation yeah um yeah yeah i think that um i i think i think i would agree with that i, I think i th comp i think of knowledge more as uh I think if you take the view of knowledge as more of sort of a active knowledge structures, then then I think that there one could make a relationship between um, um, comp computation and, and, and knowledge. But but the sort of concept of computation and, and knowledge probably needs to be ca carefully def defined. Right. Great. Well, um, it's been a great conversation, Richard. Um, Thanks for coming out to Software Engineering Daily. Um, yeah, I hope to have you back on in the future. This was a really, really fascinating show. So, um, so thanks. Sure, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for in inviting me. Uh, Absolutely. To participate in your podcast. <laughs>